0: Morning. Actually, it's just turned afternoon, so afternoon. Nice to see you. Um, So uh, most of you in the room would know that a few weeks back, you guys had a fire over there, which is why you're over here. Uh, And so, um, you know, it means there's a bit of jigging around to do, and it's not always comfortable, is it, when you move like that? not always comfortable to sit in church when it's a little bit different. So it's fallen to me uh, this particular week to introduce to you what the new chairs are going to be like in church when they're eventually (laughs) ordered. So, so this comfort is coming. Don't worry about it. <coughs> I wish I could take credit for that. That was Luke's joke, don't mind. <coughs> but wouldn't it, wouldn't it be amazing? Let's dive right in, shall we? And we'll come to this chair in a moment. I want to introduce you, just as I kick off, uh, to a fellow called Larry Loudon. Larry Loudon wrote, wrote a book and became famous because he wrote a book called The Book of Risks. And it was about the everyday kind of risks that happen to you and I, both outside and inside the home. So there's lots of stats in the book. So he talks about in the book about... He says, just under half a million people every year uh, uh, are injured because of kitchen knives. They're sharp little things. I mean, they cut carrots up really well, but they cut little fingers up as well. And he also says in the book that uh, uh, over 100,000 people every year are injured because of sores, you know, like manual saws and power saws. Which is why I always tell my wife, don't expect me to do any DIY. They're just dangerous, those things. I'm not going anywhere near them. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Can I get it, amen? (coughs) Um, But he also, interestingly, he says in the book that 20,000 people every year are injured because of curtain ties. I've been racking my, how on earth do you get injured by a curtain tie? The only thing I can put it down to is the Fifty Shades of Grey effect. Otherwise, I can't really figure out how you can get injured by a curtain tie. But he goes on in the book to say the most dangerous thing in your house isn't a curtain tie or a kitchen knife. It's this. It's your comfy chair. It's your sofa. It's that armchair you love to sit in. And he says it's not dangerous because of the dangerous things we do in it. It's dangerous because of the things we don't do because we spend our lives sat in it. So the relationships we don't deepen, the the people we don't serve because we just don't see them sat in our comfy chair. You know, the, uh, the fights that really we should be fighting, but we don't fight because we're chasing a life of comfort. The tears we don't cry, the laughter we don't have, the great big adventure that your life was designed for and my life was designed for, that we just don't go on because we spend our lives sat in the armchair. And so what I want to do this morning is to see how we can discover how we can live life now and find the adventure that our lives have been looking for. See, I don't know, this might be your first time in church, it might be that you've grown up in church, but... But for for many people, you know, I don't know, maybe this is true about you, there's this gap for so many of us between the life we dream of and the life we currently experience. And the gap seems to be widening. There is this life we dream of, the life we read about in the magazines, the life we read about in the Bible, the life we hear the preacher talk about, the life we see other people living. It's a life we dream of, but there seems to be a gap between that life and the life we're currently experiencing. And I want to help us this morning just to close that gap. Because for so many people these days, life just feels like, and can I get an amen, that it feels like it's the same old, same old. Nothing changes from day to day. You get out of the same old bed, turn off the same old alarm clock, walk over the same old piece of carpet towards the same old Bathroom, you clean the same old teeth, you walk down the same old stairs, into the same old kitchen, sit around the same old kitchen table, get out the same old bowl, pour in the same old cereal, eat the same old breakfast, walk out of the same old kitchen, through the same old front door, get into the same old car, drive down the same old road, to the same old office, do the same old days of work, laugh at the same old jokes from the same old boss, get back into the car at the end of the day, drive back up the same old road, back into the same old house, sit around the same old kitchen table, have the same old meal for tea, before you wander into the same old land and sit on the same old sofa to watch the same old TV programs, because you're probably watching Dave. <laughs> <coughs> and then the time comes for you to wander up the same old stairs to the same old bed, lie next to the same old partner, <coughs> ask the same old question, <coughs> <coughs> probably get the same old answer, yeah, <laughs> come on, this is church this morning, calm down. <laughs> only to fall asleep and do it all again yeah. the next day because nothing changes. It just feels like it's the same old, same old. And the sense of adventure has gone out of life and no wonder the sense of adventure has gone because we spend our lives sat in our comfy chairs avoiding as much risk as we possibly can. So I want to try, if I can this morning, to close that gap that often we feel in life. And if you're anything like me, you get to my age... <laughs> And you feel yourself thinking, if not saying out loud, more often than you'd want, there's got to be more to life than this. And there is. We can learn to live life now. Because this morning I want to introduce you to two people from the Bible. Fishermen, Peter and John. For them, life never changed. It was the same old, same old. It never changed until one day Jesus showed up on their beach. And when Jesus showed up, he turned their world upside down. The story is told in Matthew chapter 4. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew. They were throwing a net into the water because they were fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. It's not difficult to read between the lines in that story. I mean, you can imagine the kind of conversations that these two fishermen, Peter and John, were having with each other. You imagine Peter saying, I'm done with this fishing life now. I mean, it's just the same old, same old. You sit around in your boat, wait for the tide to change, fix your nets when they're broken, it's boring. You imagine John saying, yeah, I, I want to be a good Jew. I mean, I come home after a busy day's fishing, but these rabbis, they've got hundreds of rules and regulations that I'm supposed to follow so I can please God, it's mind numbing. And that provokes Peter into saying, hey, John, have you heard about this new rabbi fella, Jesus? I mean, he sounds amazing. If he was to come round here, I'd drop everything and go. And then one day, Jesus walked right past their boat and said, come on, lads, come follow me. And I'm going to give you an adventure that's far more exciting than catching fish. We're going to catch people. And literally everything changed. Changed the world. So in the time that I've got left in this service... I want to take you through the adventure that that fisherman, Peter, went on with his buddy, John. And it all started that day on the beach when Jesus stood in front of them and said, follow me, and they said yes. It all started that day on the beach when Jesus chose them, when Jesus chose simple fishermen. No other rabbi of the day would have done that. No other rabbi would have chosen (laughs) tradesmen, unskilled fishermen types. They weren't good enough to be rabbis. You know, a rabbi would have wanted somebody who was schooled in the scriptures, who was intelligent, someone who was theologically sound, someone who'd been to rabbi school. These guys hadn't been to rabbi school, or if they had, they'd failed. Because look, they were fishing now. No rabbi would have chosen these fishermen, but Jesus did. But of course he did, because that's what all great leaders do, don't they? Great leaders see potential in people who don't even see it in themselves. I was watching one of those um, Discovery Channel documentaries a little while ago, and I don't know why I was watching it, just happened to be on TV and it fascinated me. It was about gold mining. And there was a South African fella on there explaining what gold mining was all about. And he was standing next to one of those, you know, those ginormous, great yellow earth movers, massive thing. And he was explaining that basically gold mining is uh, moving tons and tons and tons and tons tons and, tons and tons and tons of earth, he said, just to discover one tiny nugget of gold. And you see, Jesus saw nuggets of gold potential in these Simple fishermen, in these down-to-earth fishermen, in these sort of the earth types. But then again, of course, Jesus saw potential in those down-to-earth fishermen. Of course, Jesus saw nuggets of gold in those fishermen because that's what his Father in heaven has always done with humankind. Yeah. All the way through the Bible, you see a God who sees potential in un- unlikely people. So God needs somebody in the Old Testament to speak on his behalf in front of the evil Pharaoh and he chooses Moses. And Moses says, don't choose me because I've got a stutter. But God saw potential in him to be a spokesman for his people. And so he chose him. God saw potential in David to be a ruler of the nation, despite David feeling he was too young. God saw potential in Abraham to father an entire nation, despite the fact that he was old and felt that he's got up and go, had got up and gone. Still God saw potential in him. God saw potential in um, Solomon, despite the fact that he felt he was too rich. He saw potential in Naomi, despite the fact that she felt she was too poor. He saw potential in Jonah to reach an entire city, despite the fact that Jonah ran away from God and jumped over the side of the ship. He saw potential in Noah. He saw potential in Noah to save the entire planet, despite the fact that Noah got drunk on a regular basis. He saw potential in Rahab, despite the fact that she had a very questionable relationship life, as a prostitute. But God saw potential in her. He saw potential in Gideon, despite the fact that he doubted. He saw potential in Elijah, despite the fact that he got burnt out. He saw potential in Martha, despite the fact that she found her hands doing the wrong things all the time. He saw potential in Peter, despite the fact that he bragged too much about himself. He saw potential in John the Baptist, despite the fact that John the Baptist was just plain weird. I mean, he was, he was strange. He lived in the desert and he ate locusts and wild honey and dressed in sackcloth. He was weird, but God saw potential in him. Because God always sees potential in people who can't even see it in themselves. And listen, that's how Jesus, that's how God sees you today. As he stands in front of you and says, come on, church, live life now. As he stands in front of you and says, follow me. Let go of your nets. Let go of the fishing. I've got a new adventure for you. Follow me. As he says that to you, you might say, whoa, I can't do that. You don't know who you're speaking to. I can't speak eloquently. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I'm too rich. You can't use someone like me. God says, no, I see potential in you to be my follower. So come, follow me. I tell you what, doesn't it feel amazing to be chosen? Doesn't it feel incredible when someone picks you? When someone wants you? The Apostle Paul writes about it to a bunch of Christians in the Roman city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was never, uh, one time he wasn't an apostle at all, he was a Christian killer. And then he met Jesus on a road and in an instant changed his life and became not a Christian killer but a church creator. And he gets to write most of the New Testament of the Bible and he writes letters to lots of Christians around. And one of those letters we still have, it's a letter he wrote to some of these Ephesian Christians. And he says this about being chosen in this letter. He says, long before, he laid down, long before God laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Do you get that? Before God created a bean, before God created a blade of grass, a bit of water, before God created a rock, some dirt, before God created anything, he had you in his mind. You, in 2015, in Hale Zoeen, He had you in his mind. And not just in the back of his mind, you were the focus. Look what it says. To be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Christ Jesus. He didn't just decide to send us an email and tell us how fantastic we were. He didn't decide to pat us on the back and say, go on kids, off you go. No, he adopted us, you. He says, you're my precious son. You're my beautiful daughter. You have a place at my table. You have the family inheritance. I'm adopting you into my family. That's how much I've chosen you. That's how much I think you're of value to me. That's how much I want you. I think this is incredible. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us in his family through Christ Jesus. And you might sit there thinking to yourself, hang on a minute. Yeah, but <laughs> that's what gods are supposed to do, aren't they? I mean, it's not a joy for him to do that. He's God. It's his duty. He's supposed to gather all his chicks up. And just in case we get screwy thinking like that, Paul says at the end of the verse, what pleasure he took in planning this, yeah. filled him with joy. He had your face in mind, and it filled him with joy. He had your life out in front of him, and it filled him with joy. In fact, right now, up in heaven, God's got a picture of you in His wallet, and He's desperately trying to swing the conversation around with the angels so He can talk about you, just like an old granny wants to talk about their grandchildren. And he gets his wallet out to the angels. He says, you seen him? You seen her? She's my kid. Did you get that? You've been adopted into his family. He has chosen you. That's how much value he puts on you. And it gives him joy. It gives him joy. And being chosen doesn't just make you feel like somebody wants you. Being chosen also makes you feel like you've got something to offer, right? They've chosen you because you have something to bring to the party. You have some skill, some talent, some ability to bring to the party. (laughs) You'll see why I'm laughing. There's another New Testament writer, and he writes about that. He says this, you are the ones chosen by God. Why? Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Well, 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 hang on a minute, I can't do what the priests do. I mean, that's why we employ Leon. You know, he can do those things. He can lead a church that burns to the ground. I can't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> don't, don't. I'm no, I'm just, that's why we implement, Leon's he's a great speaker, he can sing, and you know, he's, he's an evangelist, and I can't do any of that stuff. Now, you have been chosen, not just Leon, not me, not the rest of the staff in this church, you have been chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Whether you're a fisherman or a postman or a teacher or unemployed or a mum or a student, you have been chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a high, uh, holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. You have been chosen to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. And did you catch who wrote those words? Peter, the former fisherman who moved from the mundane, everyday life of same old, same old to a life of being used by God. And it started that day on the beach when Jesus said to him and his buddy John, come follow me. And they said yes. And what an adventure they had. You can read about it in the book of Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, they're just about to go into the temple and there's a man there who's been crippled from birth. And the man says, help, have you got anything you can do to help me? And Peter and John look at him and say, well, we haven't got any loose change. We haven't got any loose change. Silver and gold. Silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, Acts chapter 3 verse 6, What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Walk. And so they take him by the right hand and they help him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. I mean, he'd been crippled from birth. He'd never put pressure or weight on his feet or his ankles. Now he's up and now they've become strong. And so he jumps. He jumps to his feet and he begins to walk. And of course, because of this amazing thing that happens to him, In the the name of Jesus of Nazareth, where does he go? He goes to the temple, he goes to church because something incredible has happened in his life. They went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. Hang on a minute, that bloke dancing around the temple, his face is very familiar. He looks like the fellow we've been walking past for years, whose legs don't work. But it can't be the same bloke because he can't walk. Hang on a minute, it is the same bloke. What magic is going on here? And so a crowd gathered. And I love what, the way the Bible understates things. They were filled with wonder and amazement at a water. They weren't filled with wonder and amazement. It was like cartoon time. Their eyes were... <laughs> their jaw went <laughs> onto them. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And of course, this crowd gathered. Every, whispers are going around the temple. Come and see. Come and see. And this huge crowd had gathered, and they wanted explanation. How is it that this guy who was sick, who couldn't walk, is now walking and jumping and praising God? How does that happen? And so Peter gets up. This simple fisherman, this salt of the earth guy, guy, who never dreamt that God could use him, stands up, and he starts preaching this amazing sermon. He starts telling these people about Jesus. The trouble is, the religious leaders of the day, the guys that had crucified Jesus not so long before, they wanted to put a stop to it. So they barged their way through the crowd and they shut him up. Hey, 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 no more. They shut him up. They shut Peter up and they grab hold of Peter and they grab hold of his buddy John. And they fed up with this teaching about Jesus. It's embarrassing. And so they chuck him in the cooler overnight to cool down, lock him up. But the next morning, they've got some questions to ask. Acts chapter 4 verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power? I mean, what magic are you using to make this man's legs work? By what power? Or in what name did you do this? Then Peter, really getting bold now because he's full of the Holy Spirit. God is using this simple fisherman. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers and elders of the people. And he goes on to tell them, it's Jesus It's in the name of Jesus that this man got healed. In fact, it's by the power of Jesus that this man got healed. Oh, and you see how bold he gets. By the way, that's the Jesus that you nailed to a cross. Oh, and by the way, he says, it's only through that Jesus that you're ever going to find healing. It's only through that Jesus that you're ever going to get your life put right with God. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, he doesn't actually say the last bit, but I just added that for a bit of effect. You know how it goes. (laughs) And look at their response. Look at the response of these religious leaders. They called the apostles back in and they decided all they can say to them is, look, we command you, never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This stops here. No more talking about Jesus. No more teaching about Jesus. The Jesus thing, it finishes now. You've been in jail for a night, it could get worse. No more talking about Jesus. Finish. And You can imagine them getting up from you know behind their chair their table and getting their chairs and shoving them under the table and walking off gathering their robes behind them and just before they get to the door there's a <clears throat> there's a cough and they turn and look back and you can imagine Peter and John saying excuse me Peter and John replied do, do you think god wants us to obey you rather than him really are you that stupid Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Do you know what's happened to us these past three years? We can't stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. We just can't stop. Three years ago, it was the same old, same old. Three years ago, it was a struggle just to get out of bed in the morning. Three years ago, we were fixing nets, waiting for the tides, doing a bit of fishing. Three years ago, life was boring. Then Jesus showed up on our beach and said, live life now. Follow me. Leave it all behind. Follow me. And we've seen over the past three years the most incredible stuff. And you expect us to shut up about it? You expect us not to talk about it? You expect us never mention the name of Jesus again? Are you kidding? You see, when you say yes to following Jesus, when you say yes to living life now, when Jesus stands in front of you and says, come on, take a risk, get out of that comfy chair and follow me. When you say yes to that, you have no idea of the adventure that lies before you. No idea. The question is, are you prepared to trust him or not? I mean, look how many people started following Jesus because of these two simple fishermen. Three years earlier, Jesus whispered into Peter's ear, no more fishing for fish. We're going to fish for people. Verse 4 of Acts 4. Many of the people who heard their message believed it. Many of the people who heard Peter preach and John share his faith believed it. So the number of believers now totaled 5,000 men. 5,000 men had come to faith because of these guys, not counting the women or the kids. Hey, so just for giggles, should we count the women and the children? Let's say that every man had a woman, that's 10,000. Let's say each couple had one kid, unlikely they probably had a whole bunch more. So he's talking 15, potentially 20,000 people Were now had a hope for today and a hope for their eternal future because these two simple fishermen, when Jesus said, Follow me, said, Yes. You have no idea of the adventure that's lying before you. And when Jesus whispered into Peter's ear, Let's go, forget the pollock, we're going for people, forget the fish, we're going for a better adventure. And now, and now, in front of their eyes, it's actually happening. Maybe your life's missing out on that kind of adventure. Maybe for you every day just feels like the same old, same old. Nothing changes. All the passion's gone. All the sense of purpose in life has disappeared. And now you're just afraid. You're, you're afraid to follow Jesus. You're afraid to take any kind of risks. And you know what? If that's you, well then you're missing out. You know Honestly, I would say in my life, I have very few regrets. But the regrets that I do have centre around the times when I've ignored God's prompting. When I've ignored God's say to me, come on, follow me. And I often wonder what adventures I've missed out on because of that. And yet on the flip side, there are times when I've said yes. There's times when God's called and I've said yes, I'll follow. And I've had enough of those experiences to know that when that happens, He'll take you to places you could never dream of. He'll give you experiences you never thought were possible. So back in the mid-80s, 1986, I was earning great money. I had a brilliant job, lots of prospects, a brand new company car every couple of years. I was earning more cash than my dad was earning. God called me to give it all up and to go work for a mission agency, travelling around, well, mainly this country, trying to explain my faith to people who were interested. You know, that was the most exciting decade Of my life. And then in the mid 90s, I gave that up to to go start a church in a place called Banbury in Oxfordshire. And there was only a handful of people, and they couldn't afford to pay me, but it it just felt right to go. And and very quickly, the thing grew, and it grew from just a handful in a lounge to to over 200 people that met in a community centre. Lives changed, people getting baptised, the church growing. And then in 2003, God prompted me again to, to, to leave Banbury to come to Suffolk. Who would have thought 13 years ago when I first came to Suffolk and joined a church called MCF, that it would morph into a thing called the Forge, that it would move locations from Mendelssohn to Debenham, that it would become one church meeting on two locations with a dream of being one church meeting on many locations around Suffolk in the next 15 years. no idea of the adventures that God's got ahead of you if you say yes when he says follow me let me just bring this into land because I'm just conscious that for some of us you've you've come to church this morning and uh, to be honest you're not feeling like you're up for an adventure because to be honest for you just putting one foot in front of the other and getting through the day it's all the energy you can muster do you not know Duncan the bills I've got to pay the the sorting out of the kids, it's just exhausting I just want to sit in my comfy chair you're telling me to go ahead with an adventure? I can't do that. I'm not ready for an adventure. I'm ready to throw the towel in. Well, just as I come to a conclusion, I, I want to tell you about an old movie came out in the '80s. Do you remember the Rocky films? I want to tell you about one film from one particular Rocky movie. I can't remember which rocky movie it, what it was. one of the later ones, probably Rocky '78, I think. I'm not even, <laughs> so many of them. I think, don't push me, over, I think it's Rocky Five. But in the movie, Rocky's getting old now, and he doesn't fight anymore. He just pours his experience into younger fighters. He trains younger people up. And one of those younger fighters is a chap called Tommy Gunn. And he pours everything he can into Tommy Gunn. He tra- trains him, makes him the best. And Tommy Gunn goes on to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Problem is, Tommy Gunn starts believing his own press releases. Tommy Gunn gets a bit big-headed and Tommy Gunn gets in with the wrong crowd. And in this particular scene, he's standing in front of Rocky's apartment building and he wants to fight with him. He wants him to come out so he can fight him on the street. And he's taunting him and taunting his wife and taunting his kids. And in the end, Rocky can't bear it anymore and he comes out of his building and he socks one onto Tommy's cheek. But Tommy's young. He just shakes it off. Rocky's old. And Tommy turns and starts punching him and Rocky really struggles. And in one of those... Classic movie moments. It all goes into slow-mo. And Tommy winds his right hook up and it lands across Rocky's cheek and Rocky didn't see it coming. And as it hits his his cheek, his face deforms. A tooth flies out, blood flies out, a bit of spit flies out. And Rocky staggers back and hits a wall and slides down the wall of his apartment building and lands amongst a bunch of bags and rubbish and he's lying there. He tries to get up but he can't. And so he has these series of flashbacks. He has a flashback to the first fight he ever won. But that can't get him up. And so then he has a flashback to his greatest ever victory against some big Russian robot of a boxer. But that can't get him up. Then he has a flashback to crowds cheering his name, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. But that can't get him up either. (laughs) But then (laughs) he has a vision. He moves from a flashback to a vision. He has a picture in his mind of this little fella who loved him dearly. little fella called Mickey, who was his first trainer, who poured everything into Rocky, made Rocky who he was. Mickey's long since dead, but he has a vision of Mickey. And Mickey is standing in front of him. He's come back to life. And he said, Rocky, I love you. Get up. Get back into the fight. And of course, you know what happens next. Cue the music. Rocky shakes his head, brushes a banana skin off of one shoulder and a can of tuna off the other. He stands to his feet and he wanders across to Tommy Gunn and he taps Tommy Gunn on the shoulder and in his best Sylvester Stallone he says, Tommy, the fight, it's not over. He knocks six bells out of this young gun. And when I saw that little clip, it just made me think, You know, all the positive thinking in the world couldn't get Tommy up. All the memories of past victories and past failures, all the memories of crowds taunting his name couldn't get Tommy up. It took a vision. It took a vision of someone who loved him, someone who died for him, and someone who'd come back to life and was saying, come on, get up, get back into the game. And I don't know, maybe for some of us this morning, we need a vision of Jesus. We need to see him in a way we've never seen him before. Not as some nighty wearing, you know, distant character, but someone who's standing in front of your boat on a beach saying, You're gonna follow me? You up for the adventure? You're gonna live life now. Maybe some of you need a vision of a Jesus like Mickey who loves you, who really did die and really did come back to life, and is standing in front of you now and saying, I know you're tired, I know it feels like you're exhausted, but get back into the game. Get up. Let's fight again. You see, that's what Peter and John had. They had the resurrected Jesus in front of them. They knew his power. They'd used it to see this uh, uh, man with bad legs come back to life again and walk, find his life again. They'd experienced his power. They knew that uh, he loved them. And so they were never going to shut up. They were never going to quit. They were never going to walk away. So where does that leave you? Because the Jesus of 2,000 2000 years ago, who whispered into Peter's ear, follow me. Can you hear him? Because he's whispering those two words to you this morning. And now the ball's in your court. Let's pray, shall we? Father, our lives are longing for adventure. We are bored and fed up with the same old, same old. And I know for some of us, Lord, we think adventure's passed us by because we're too old. Some of us, we think adventure's not going to be on our agenda because we haven't got any money. We're just unemployed. Some of us think we're too young. We're just at school. And maybe, Lord, you're not calling us to leave our jobs. Maybe you're calling us to stay as fishermen, to stay where we are and to let the adventure unfold, to really follow you in a way we've never, never done before. truth be told Lord for some of us we're sat here and we're not even sure who you are we wouldn't class ourselves as believers but we hear you this morning you're not asking us to believe in you you're asking us to follow you with all your doubts and uncertainties just start following me and you will discover the adventure that your life was designed for And so in the best way we know how God we put our hands up into your hands And we say, take us and lead us wherever you want to take us and lead us. You say follow, we say yes, yes.